every single marketer and every single brand should be attempting to earn a disproportionate share of conversation. If you work for an organization where they say, bring us a chart that goes up and to the right, you have a challenge. Half the money I spend on advertising is wasted. The trouble is, I don't know which half. I am here to inspire you, to excite you, to motivate you, to transform you, to energize you. Hello and welcome to Demand Gen Visionaries. This episode features an interview with Daniel Rodriguez, CMO of Simpler. Simpler is a human-first, machine-enabled customer experience solution that meets the demands of the now customer across all digital channels. Daniel is leading a team that is redefining the way brands deliver customer service. On this episode, Daniel shares his insights into building a successful brand community, creating a halo effect by having the right investments, and ways to get your target audience to think positively about your brand. But before we get into it, here's a brief word from our sponsor. Demand Gen Visionaries is brought to you by Qualified. Qualified is the pipeline generation platform for revenue teams that use Salesforce. You can intelligently grow your pipeline by understanding the signals of buying intent and having real-time conversations right on your website. You can learn more at qualified.com. So please enjoy this interview between Daniel Rodriguez and your host, Ian Faison. Welcome to Demand Gen Visionaries. I'm Ian Faison, CEO of Caspian Studios, and today I am joined by a special guest. Daniel, how are you? Hello. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Great to have you on the show. Excited to chat marketing. So let's get into it today. Starting off, what was your first job in Demand Gen? I went to business school, and while I was in business school, I wanted to get my own company off the ground. The business idea was in the marketing technology space. And when that company failed to get off the ground fully, and I then had to go out and actually get hired to work for someone else, I started talking to companies, and they're like, what, do you, what would you do for us? What do you want to do? And I was like, I don't really know exactly. Let me tell you about what we were trying to do with this previous company. And uh, I was talking to the CEO, and he said, oh, that's interesting. That really sounds like you're a very forward-thinking marketing leader. <laughs> I haven't really done marketing before, but if you say so. And when you first get hired to run marketing, the first marketing hire at a pre funded company. <laughs> if you're not doing demand gen, I don't know what you're doing, basically, because the only thing the company cares about is, hey, we need to sell some new customers here and generate some interest and get some lead. So I very much unknowingly fell into the, the kind of school of thought of marketing, which was early stage marketing does in many ways equal demand gen. And then I've had marketing leadership positions where the focus, the primary focus of what we're doing is really building out that demand gen function. Flash forward to today. Tell us about your current role. So I'm the CMO at a startup company called Simpler, and I'm responsible for the business development function, product marketing, PR, and analyst strategic communications, design, and demand gen. All of the above. Sounds like a CMO. And what does Simpler do? Simpler is in the customer experience technology space. So we help consumer, not all consumer, most of our customers are consumer brands. We help them to engage with their own prospects and customers through their digital channels. So if you have a chat on your site, 
and you're looking for engagement with prospects to help convert them, we've got both chatbot and people solutions that help people do that, as well as doing that on other digital channels like email, SMS. We talk a ton about chat and about how important opening up that two-way communication is super into that. But And before we get into kind of your marketing strategy, it seems like you have tons of B2C type companies like Vans and Decathlon and North Face and MacWeld and all sorts of amazing companies like that that you're working with. How many companies are doing stuff like this? How many are doing it right we are, as consumers, I think, we have become increasingly like Veruca Salt. I will blame Amazon for this generally because they have provided such an amazing customer-centric way of immediacy in the way that we can expect to both engage but also just respond. My entire purchase can be on my doorstep two hours from now. That is really solving for that now customer. What we see in the market right, is that the expectations that brands customers have of them being able to be readily available to respond to them in a variety of different digital channels has somewhat exploded. There's a segment of the audience that is saying, what do you mean? I feel like I've been like that. Maybe you've been part of this kind of core group of millennials that has already been leading this pathway, but there are now other demographics that are also going in this direction, which is to say, hey, my desire and inclination to use chat on somebody's website is now something that I'm actually familiar with expecting to do. So we're seeing this trend only go in one direction. It's not going to back in the other way. And companies don't really want it necessarily to go in the other way, of course, being I just pick up the phone when things are wrong, because the phone channel is the single most expensive way that, that you can engage with the customer. And so a lot of companies recognize that there's better ways that they can provide great service to their customers, get them to convert, get them to be loyal. Let's get to our first segment, the trust tree. With the knowledge you've been given, you are now on the inside of what I like to call the circle of trust. What, I thought we were in the trust tree in the nest, are we not? This is where we can go and feel honest and trusted, and you can share those deepest, darkest marketing secrets. Tell me a little bit more about your customers and who is that buying committee for Simpler? We're selling to customer experience leaders. Sometimes these folks are also responsible for running running a contact center or running a customer service agent. They might be either internal or external BPOs, the relationships that they have. And then also on the marketing side. So we work with marketing leaders that are looking to do digital acquisition, not just the ad dollars that are trying to drive the traffic to the site. But we're working with people to say, okay, what happens when somebody's actually there between being there and their actual buying. So we work with them to improve those conversion rates. Decathlon is a good example of that. You spend a dollar with Simpler and you're bringing in $5 of revenue because those conversion rates are so powerful, seeing that 44% increase in conversion rates. That feels really powerful for a lot of marketing leaders who are craving being able to prove the, the dollar value of their spend. Love me some decathlon. I need to go there and get a badminton set. I got a new house and been itching for badminton. So within this buying committee, how do you structure your organization to go after those accounts? Do you have certain types of accounts that you're going after a certain size company? And how are you going to figure out your company to go get them? 
we do segment the market based on a couple of factors. One is industry. We're in the process of expanding. We've been focused a lot on the retail space as well as the quick serve restaurant space and SaaS companies that have a large end user base. We call our customers partners because we view it as a deeper partnership. Calendly is a good example of that. We then also segment by size. We do have minimums. So we focused on the larger and then enterprise side of the market. And that's based on volume. That's not just necessarily based on the amount of revenue that a company, that's based on the customer service and customer interaction volume that a brand has. That's really the way that we do it. You mentioned that all the stuff that you oversee in terms of your sales process, is it pretty like enterprise level complex or is it more you can just go to you could just go to simpler.ai and there is complexity in the sense that you cannot just buy through our website. So we do have in addition to our business development team that I was mentioning that I oversee, there is there's a sales team with a sales leader and we have our, our AEs and they are they're running sales cycles. Awesome. And you mentioned back in the day when you were the first marketing hire in a previous company, how you're like, oh, if you're not doing demand, you're crazy here. How I'm curious, how do you think about demand? as it fits within your current marketing strategy? The way that the demand generation team is even defined, I think sometimes is, what do people mean? What lives in demand gen, right? Because one could argue that everything that's involved with the entire content team, events, design, everything that we're running with ABM, marketing automation, all of that technology effort and those people and what we're doing on social combined with our business development team, that is all demand gen. Because to one level up to our CEO or to our board, it's like they don't care how the sausage is made. They don't necessarily care about the attribution models that some marketers are pouring over trying to prove spend, right? Because attribution is tricky and the reality is it's much more like a cocktail shaker than it is like a, a straight pour of something. Where does the website have its attribution? Where does an event that we run have its attribution? Sometimes it's along the way. Sometimes it's difficult to quantify. But what people can see is what is the total overall amount that we're spending on this and what are we getting out of it? Meaning, what is the dollar value of the pipeline that we're getting out of it? So we really align the demand gen team around the dollar value of pipeline that's getting generated. We have goals around that. And we do track which stuff is coming from the business development team and which stuff is actually coming from our, quote, demand gen team on the marketing side because you think of BD as more of a sales function, even though it's all rolls up here. I have told Aisha, our, our demand gen leader, and Josh, our business development leader, no one will care where it's all coming from, but they will care very much how much that we're getting. Yeah, it's so and so our job collectively is to make sure that we are not, there's no finger pointing. And one of the things I've actually enjoyed about, and I've, cause I've now been, this is the third startup company I've been at. It's the first one where we've had the business development team and the demand gen team under the same roof. Oh, interesting. Right? And this is always like a kind of classic like question of yeah. what works better. And one of the things that I really, what I, I'm really enjoying about the way that we have this set up, it just eliminates what is a central finger pointing game of you're not giving me enough high quality leads. 
so that I don't have enough of them to work and therefore we're not able to hit our number. And you're giving me a an MQL metric on one hand that is inflated or weak or has too many holes in the logic and or they're just not far enough down the evaluation process. They're really just a pulse. They're not a an MQL. It just takes a lot of that stuff away because it's like, no, 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 we're all on the same team. So the way that those teams then work together, it was much more symbiotic and there are no fingers to be pointed. Let's get to our next segment, the playbook. This is what's great about sports. This is what the greatest thing about sports is. You play to win the game. Hello? You play to win the game. This is where you open up that playbook and talk about the tactics that help you win. What are your three channels or tactics that are your uncuttable budget items? What has been really wild here is that over the course of this pandemic, this logic for me has even been put to test, right? I mean, which is doing stuff in person. In the in the enterprise software space that I've been in now, there are trade shows and there are in-person events and there are dinners that people will have and there's learning opportunities and all of that stuff is important. And the way that new technology emerges is because people hear about it, they see about it, and people talk about it. And to the extent that we are being part of that voice and that we are also facilitating some of those interactions is critically important. So definitely things related to events broadly, not just attending trade shows, but having events, sponsored events, owned events, co-marketed events, customer events, prospect dinners, right? All Like all of that stuff, which was all turned completely off for, I've been at Simpler now for two years, for almost the entirety of that two years. And then so it was a question of, well, what do we do with some of that budget we previously had and how do we plan for some of that? And there, there's a whole separate conversation to just have about some of those contingencies. But I will say that's definitely one. So then coming out of all of this, I'm curious, like, where did you say this is the first type of event or couple clusters of events that we do want to focus on? Like, what was your first inclination there of like where you wanted to spend that money again? The first has just been on some trade shows where we know we can actually go out and talk to people. But what's been tricky is that the trade show attendance, we even backed out. There was an event in New York that was this big event called NRF. We, We had been to it a few years ago. We knew it was going to be good for us. But coronavirus numbers were spiking at that time, and we we made a decision, you know, at the eleventh hour not to attend, and that felt like the right business decision. But I mean, so much of what we've been working with has really just been, hey, here's the events we would like to be doing, and then <laughs> are they happening? What's going on? And when they're happening in the future, are they going to be in person? Are they going to be virtual? What are the contingencies for how all this is going to go? I'm hoping we're reemerging now, and just from a planning perspective, we're going to be able to expect that we can do events in person so that we can go to them. And it's going to be a combination of trade shows that we're going to attend, and then thought leadership style dinners that we are going to be hosting that will be prospects and existing customers with some original content that we'll be that we'll be sharing. You know, this is the whole rubbing elbows strategy, right? Like we just really want to get our prospects to just hear directly from our customers how much of a relief it is basically to have us working with them because it allows them to focus on the things that are going to be much further looking for them and allow them to really advance their own careers and win some awards and stuff like that. We want to get out of the way in those situations. We just need to facilitate. 
Yeah, that makes sense. And also, I think that going back into a situation where the other side wants to listen to, I think that that's a key part of events that people sometimes forget is this is contingent on like the other side understanding that they're going to events to learn, to connect, to learn about new solutions that are out there, to learn about new vendors. That's the other piece. It's not just like going to events where people are going to be like miserable if they meet a vendor, right? It's like they know that that's part of the experience. That's right. Yeah. And people, I think, are eager to meet their, what is now like a new peer set to them. Hey, if you're a CX leader and it's been a few years since you've been out in the world, who are the people that are leading CX and maybe live in my city? I'd like to be able to go out and and meet folks like that. We have a community that we're building and part of the functional area that I even failed to to mention at the beginning was this CX life community that we have. It's a big part of the strategy because we want to grow other people's careers in customer experience. And in order to do that, we want to facilitate them being able to connect with each other, figure out what best practices are, get the best jobs as they become available. Why did you think about that? How did that come about? So The playbook around community, I think, has been one that I've noticed at other companies where it seems like, hey, they're creating this movement and they're galvanizing the market. And it doesn't need to just be their customers that are galvanized, that people are seeing value and wanting to be part of this thing that allows the company to basically have an outsized amount of influence and share of voice and share of mind and have just this positive effect that people think about this company in a certain way. HubSpot, I thought, did that really well with HubSpot Academy and just like the way they they ran their overall event. So I think that was probably on the mind of the team here at Simpler before I arrived and the idea that, hey, we would have this CX Life community and we would have like a big annual in-person event and people would want to attend this because they want to learn. They want to grow their careers. They want to get better and they want to be on the cutting edge of what's coming in CX. And it is not an overt sales pitch or even a veiled sales pitch. It is other leaders talking about things that have nothing to do with how you would want to support chat on your website with Simpler. And so we've we and we've tried to keep that going. You know, it's hard to do that kind of community building when people can't physically get together. So I'm really excited about taking that show on the road and continuing to build this community. And also one of the things we want to do is give we want to give voice to that kind of next generation of CX leaders. And that next generation of CX leaders doesn't look like the previous generation. You know, and I'm talking about I'm talking about demographic stuff here. It's not just bald white guys basically. But that's kind of all it looks like right now to be honest. And I think there's a lot of people out there like who are the people that I am going to see myself in and giving voice to some of those up and comers that show them, "Oh, I should be here. I do belong in the C-suite. This is going to be my path." Yeah. And it's critical to have mentors, right? Part of that is if you don't know anyone who's ever been on this path, and especially anyone that looks like you or something close to you, it's virtually impossible to get ahead, right? You have to at least know some people or start to to cultivate those relationships, especially with like the way that work is now. If you work for a company, if you're a CX leader and you're in a company, remote company, and you're not around a bunch of other CX leaders, 
that's really hard to develop connections and do that sort of stuff. So, I mean, I'm, I'm like the biggest fan ever of communities. I, I always love hearing about community marketing and how to build a community and how to do that stuff the right way. So I love this stuff. Uh, and I think it's super powerful when it's done right. And, you know, when it's done wrong, it's a little clunky, but if you're putting your best foot forward and you're trying to level everybody up, it usually ends up working even better than you thought it was going to. I'm, I'm curious, like, how do you feel? I mean, everything gets, you know, gets waylaid when there's a global pandemic, but I'm curious, like, how are you feeling so far on community building? What are your tips? Community is an organic process, right? And you can try to do things to encourage people to then engage, but I think it's understanding. I think the first thing that I, I feel like I'm learning about it is that you really have to understand what is it that people are looking to learn. And one of the things that we've realized is that there's a lot around career definition stuff because CX is a newer field. And you can say, oh, there's customer support, but CX is purposely, I think, broadening past support. And so definitionally, people are like, I think I want to do CX. What is CX? And how do I understand more about developing skill sets that would allow me to really become a CX leader? And then there's the the like, I'm seeking a job in CX. I want to get that take that next step from manager to director, from director to VP. And I think that there's a lot of people that are really wanting to understand what does it take to do that? What are the job descriptions that I should be looking to aspire to having the skill sets? So what do those job descriptions actually look like? Are there job boards that I can go look for so I can more easily find a job that would maybe fit my own skill set? So we've realized, I think, partly by just talking to people, right? Like our community manager going in, doing a welcome conversation with, you know, every new person coming in, just having a 15, 20 minute conversation. Like, Hey, why are you here? What are you hoping to learn? Here's what we have. Here's what we have for you. Here's what we hope that other community members are going to facilitate for you. The community manager is a, is an intermediary. It works best, I think, when they can be an, an evangelist, but not really have to be the one that is directly facilitating all of the interactions, that the community itself, every community, I think, hits a a somewhat of a tipping point, it seems like, when you get around 100 to 200 people, where there's actually enough people engaged in a community platform. You need a platform. You need a place where people are going to go and engage. And when you then have enough people that are then engaging, then it feels like there's something going on there. Like someone can ask a question and somebody else will respond within a day. And then they're like, oh, this is cool. I'm now finding value here. So I think in so many ways, that very beginning phase, just getting enough people there and getting it going requires a a pretty substantial kind of push by the organization to just get people involved. But then there is a sense of like, is the main purpose of this and listening to people what they want it to be and just allowing the community to become that and not making the community be something that maybe you thought it should be right when you were going into it. What I do know is I want this community to be these groups of people and a bunch of them (laughs) and for them to find this valuable. And it's my job to listen to them and figure out how do I make this valuable for them. What do you say when leadership says, what's the ROI on community? Oh my gosh, this happens all the time. And I think it's like a it's a it's like a going fear probably that I think a lot of community leaders have, which is not dissimilar in many ways to the same type of going fear that many marketing program managers have. 
How do I justify the spend on the thing that I'm doing? How do I attribute it back to the pipeline? Now, it's always great, actually, when you can just throw a direct like, well, we talked to this one person and they act- I introduced them to somebody here because they actually did seem like they had some need and we're not actively selling, but we will pass someone along. So those are always like, everyone loves that. But I think the real answer is you need a, a senior executive to understand the long-term value of what it means to do a give-first approach. Because community in and of itself is really about giving to people and shaping maybe the type of conversation they're having, maybe the topics are getting influenced a little bit so that you are bending that conversation back to things that are part of your overall value that you're trying to drive for companies. You have to have, I think, fundamental belief that there is a halo effect that happens by having an investment, which is a a modest investment, I think, in getting hundreds of people from your target audience to then be caring about things that you generally want them to be caring about and to know who your company is and have a positive idea of your company. And like, what does that do for your brand? And I think that you have to be able in some ways to take that long-term view. It's a very much of a, it's a long, you take the long on it. And then you have to continually remind the CEO, CFO about why that expense is important. Yeah. In B2B marketing, there are certain things that it, it always reminds me of the CEO talking to the CFO and the CFO saying, what if we train all the employees and they leave? And the CEO says, well, what if we don't train them and they stay? I, that's the <laughs> same way that I always view it. Community marketing, right? Is like, yeah, you could not do it because maybe you don't have the money or you don't have whatever. You could not invest in content marketing, for example. You can definitely not do those things. But in terms of like how you would build a portfolio, you would always build with high upside initiatives. And community is a heavy expenditure on the front end, and it has a high LTV. Like content marketing, expensive up upfront costs, but it has high LTV. Like you want to build those things. And I think that if you live month by month or quarter by quarter as a marketing leader, that's just, that's not your job. Like your job is to be two years out and also understand what needs to happen two months out. But that's just how you build a portfolio. And I think it's so funny that it's like, oh, we'll cut community. If you can't afford to do community, maybe fold it up. (laughs) Maybe business is not right for you. It's also maybe you're not really trying to create a movement and build a category. Sure. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, if you're just trying to be a niche player and you just want to, hey, maybe we're the low cost, we're the value play in the market and we don't... For sure. There are places, I think, to say, okay, but again, I would, yeah, I'd put content marketing in that bucket as well. Why are we doing content marketing? We don't need to educate the market on anything. We're just showing up where we need to show up, people are going to buy based on our being the cheapest price. So let's just have a bunch of ad campaigns and let's just have a bunch of very clear copy on the website and let's just call it a day. And I think that I think that sometimes CEOs and CFOs, if they're just looking at their business through a spreadsheet, they can reduce it to that. But I think most of the time, the, you know, and certainly the CEO here, Aang, he fully recognizes, oh, we have 
a movement that we're creating. I mean, we wrote a book. We have a community. We are very much attempting to have thousands of people saying, oh, this Now CX movement is absolutely what I'm about. And it shows because this is how I care about our customers and this is the result that it has for our business. Yeah, I equate it to if you're standing on the top of a hillside and you want to knock over a mailbox, it's like you could throw a rock off the hillside and hope that you hit the mailbox or you could throw a snowball down there and hopefully that snowball turns into a gigantic snowball that guarantees that you're going to knock down the mailbox. I just made that up. But you know what I mean? That's the sort of thing that like building a community does is because it compounds, it builds on itself and it becomes something that you don't need to manage and that continues to exist with this, with minimal effort to, like you said, to manage the community and to bring more resources from it rather than putting it into it. And I think that's the the issue there is is that there's that difference. And I know we've talked about this for super long, but it's so interesting to me because I think that if you were to go take the top, the cloud 100 or whatever, how many people have a good community? If you have their CMO, how good is your community? They'd be like, yeah, ours is great. What do you think that number is? It's got to be super low. So I just feel like nobody's, nobody out there, we can point to ones like retroactively that you're like, oh, those were great. Marketing Nation was great. Obviously, Salesforce, Ohana, and Trailblazers, that is great. Easy to look at the successes. How do you look at them now building it from 200? I think it's so fascinating. Yeah, it is. It really is. And it's an area that I still want to... I, I still want to learn too. I don't. I, if there's anyone out there that's that's listening, is then hey, I love growing communities, or I'm a community manager. I'd love to talk to you. Yeah, likewise. Any other uncuttables that you wanted to mention? I, I feel like again, if you're going to be influencing a market and you are going to be creating a movement, it's the first hire. You have a BDR. You want them to go and, and reach out to people. If you're going to actually have anything to say to anybody, you need content marketing. And so that was that was kind of the, the first hire I made when, when I was at Seismic. It was the you know, first hire I made in my last company, Alice. And then here, we've invested very heavily in, in content marketing. Anything that's not working or stuff that you're maybe hesitant on in the future? I'm always jealous of, of people where, where they are already in a defined enough market that paid search has like a very clear value to their business. You know, if you're in an earlier stage market, paid is a little bit of a, a leap of faith that you're taking around influence and it, it does not have the kind of clean, the, the clean ROI that it can if your business is a little bit more mature. So it's it's not easier to do paid than it was in the past too because of some of the algorithmic changes. So, you know, it's, it makes it harder to, to target. So paid is always just a, an area where I'm like, I wish I could just hand over buckets of money and someone would actually give me proper leads. But I don't think it's it's quite that easy. People make it seem like it is. Indeed. All right, let's get to our dust up. Uh-oh. Here comes trouble. You may have heard that there was a dust up involving yours truly. And now we've got a wild scrum with fights breaking out all over the place. And it is getting really ugly as we've got punches and kicks. This is our segment where we talk about healthy tension, whether that's with your board, your sales team, competitors, or anyone else. Daniel, have you had a memorable dust up in your career? <laughs> God. Oh my gosh. Yeah. For those of you who actually know what Seismic is now, this is when Seismic was about $40 million of revenue. Seismic is closer to $400 million of revenue right now. And so it was quite a bit of a smaller company. And we did not have a very large 
marketing program budget and we had never done anything out of home. Like we've, we had never done any larger scale advertising and the head of sales was adamant that we like show up bigger and that we are more visible to people. And I didn't fundamentally disagree that that would be great. You know, he would see an ad on TV and be like, why S&P partners with Under Armour? It's like a freaking Super Bowl commercial. He's like, why can't we be that? And I'm like, like, how long do you have for me to explain this to you? Because it won't take long. Because that costs more money than we spend on the entire program budget and people. So, I mean, there's like stuff like that. And then it all came to a head when he was like, I really want us to do a billboard campaign so that I can see seismic on on my commute on Route 93 North. And I was like, I don't know. That sounds like not necessarily it's going to hit a lot of our target buyers. Like we know who our target audience is. But I realized that I think I was arguing on a like practical level. And I think he was really arguing on a more like visceral, like emotional level. At the time, I was like, I was like, I am so right and you're so wrong. But what I really wished I would have done is really peeled that back a little bit and understood what is it that we feel like we need to be doing to be a bigger company and to be a bigger brand, right? And now I'm on LinkedIn, right? And of course, Seismic's budget to do this kind of stuff is significantly larger than it was back then. But Seismic has done now their first official Mm out-of-home marketing campaign. They have a digital billboard. I saw someone take a picture of it on the NASDAQ stock exchange right there in Times Square, which apparently is like the all the rage. I've seen so many tech companies now like buying time to just show up in Times Square, I think, so that people can like it's maybe one of the most visible places that people everyone knows like where that is in the picture yeah. and it's where people are aspiring to to be ringing the bell sure. on the New York Stock Exchange or the Nasdaq right so um i think understanding like what could we do that and even if it's more of like a, a guerrilla marketing tactic like what can we do to me- make our company as visible as we can to satisfy whether that's coming from a place of ego, whether that's just coming from a place of galvanizing the company, whatever it is, it's probably a good idea to try to show up in places that you feel like maybe you you couldn't show up and, and get creative about it. I love it. All right, let's get to quick hits. These are quick questions and quick answers, just like how quickly you can talk to somebody with qualified Go to qualified.com right now. It's quick and easy, just like these questions. We love Qualified. They've been with us since the very first episode of this show. Go to qualified.com to learn more. Daniel, quick hits. Are you ready? I'm ready. Hidden talent or skill that's not on your resume? I'm a musician. I'm in a band. I don't think I put that on my resume. Favorite book, podcast, or TV show that you checked out recently? Real, I'm I'm watching the show Severance right yeah. now, and I think it has a lot of implications for creating the right work work culture. <laughs> oh, Melon Ball <laughs> or Melon Bar? Bar. Oh, yeah. Favorite non marketing hobby that sort of maybe kind of indirectly makes you a better marketer? I love wine, and wine is all about stories, and I think that understanding the story behind a wine, I think, in many ways, can help things like telling your elevator pitch. Any advice that you would give to a first-time CMO trying to figure out their demand gen strategy? Read the book Play Bigger is um, is great if you're going to be creating a category because it will allow you to it will allow you to think about the longer-term implications of how you fund things today. 
Daniel, it's been awesome having you on the show. Thanks so much uh, for joining. For our listeners, go check out simpler.ai. And everybody check out Daniel's book, Experiences Everything, and we'll link it up in the show notes. Any final thoughts? Anything to plug? No, I am just very appreciative I was able to be here. Thanks so much. Awesome. Thank you. Take care. The ManGen Visionaries is brought to you by our friends at Qualified.com, a conversational marketing company that's on a mission to transform the way B2B companies sell. Go to Qualified.com to learn more.